Season 2 of Between Us is sponsored by Medify. We're grateful to be partnered with the therapist who created the Medify app to help bring this podcast to the world. I've been using Medify for a little while now, and I gotta say, I love it. It's easy to use, and it helps you become aware of your emotional experience. And it uses language that's more descriptive than just good or bad. It's great. Medify, spelled M-E-T-A-F-I, is a self-awareness app designed to encourage a mindful approach to your mind, body, and emotions. Medify is a free download, so try it out on Android or iOS today and be your best self. How do we think about this? How do we make sense of this? Everything would have shifted for everybody. But by my intolerance and my fears that were present in that case and my withdrawal, we had both lost our minds. And that's the problem with enactment. We lose our minds temporarily. Enactment isn't necessarily a bad thing. What's bad is if you don't get out of it. (laughs) And then it moves into acting out. I'll tell you what I want. I want you to leave I don't know out there on the table with the magazines, okay? Yeah, and if I don't have an answer, you want me to make one up? Yeah, that'll be nice. Make one up right now about how there's no feelings in there, no how. I said I have feelings. Oh, now you have Now you don't. Get it together, Jared. But why are you hassling me, huh? Why are you trying to make me mad? Are you mad? No! Oh, cut the shit. You're mad. You're mad as hell. You don't like being pushed, so why don't you do something about it? What? Tell me to fuck off. I don't know. fuck off! No, I can't. I can't do this. Why not? Can't. No, Why not? I can't do this. No. Uh, it takes too much energy to get mad. You know how much energy it takes to hold it back? When I let myself feel, all I feel is lousy. Oh, I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. Fuck you, Burger. What? Fuck you. Yeah? Fuck you! That's it. Jesus, you're really weird. What about you? What do you feel, huh? Do you jack off or jerk off or whatever you call it? What do you think? What do I think? You married your fat lady, and you go home and you fuck the living daylights out of her! Sounds good to me. Oh. A little advice about feeling, kiddo. Don't expect it always to tickle. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. As you know, um, two or three years ago, someone at the end of the semester raised their hand and said, I have all this theory, but I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. As students were going into internships that were cognitive behavioral, uh, manualized treatment centers, that they had been learning a lot about uh, relational psychoanalysis, object relations theory, and so it was abstract and they didn't have any sort of, well, what are the basics? So what do I start with? What do I begin with? And so then I embarked on this qualitative research study and interviewed matured, long-term, average 25 years psychoanalysts across the country. And then uh, did all the coding and did all that sort of thing and came down to seven, well, actually eight, but seven core competencies uh, that define what a relational psychoanalysis is. What can I say about Roy Barsness? If you've had him as a professor, then you know that he often escapes words. He's passionate about relational psychotherapy, He's a compassionate person. He's a devout man, but not in the way that most of us think about piety. Roy is devoted to personhood. My quintessential Roy story is that he was once asked to address a group of Christian missionaries who were going on a mission to the Middle East. And he told them that they could not plan on converting Muslims without first being willing to be converted themselves. I love that. I think he told them that 
because Roy's philosophies are deeply rooted in the theology of Jewish theologian Martin Buber, who taught that when we encounter the other in a reciprocal and mutual way, we stay open to encountering the divine. Roy has been hard at work on a book that he is writing and editing called Core Competencies of Relational Psychoanalysis. It's about to be published by Rutledge. I struggle with this title because I know Roy to be extremely academically excellent, but also warm and lovable and funny. In the book, Roy edits contributions from some very important people discussing a qualitative study he performed to categorize and codify some of the skills associated with this abstract and weird practice. Nancy McWilliams addresses therapeutic stance. Lou Aaron talks about the here and now. Adrian Harris discusses the relational tradition. And Cara Moroda addresses working through problems and repetition. And there are others. There's Roy. Roy, among other topics, writes about courageous speech which is something I know Roy to practice. His personality and his style are countercultural, and that he says what others are not willing to say. And he is willing to go to difficult places with his patients, but, as we discuss, with a sense of great responsibility. Before we get to the interview, a quick word on how we do case studies on this show, because you'll be hearing some from both Roy and myself. We take confidentiality pretty seriously. And our guests and ourselves always disguise any identifiable factors about our clients that we discuss. You can always assume that some major detail of their story and their identity has been changed, and that no actual personal details will be included in the stories. These tales of psychotherapy are about the relationships and the dynamics more than they are about the data of the people we're discussing. Here's Roy. Something that I thought about when I was in community mental health is that the language is different. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the work that you're doing is translational yes. in nature. Yeah, I would say that there was also that attempt to hold to the language. Each discipline has its language, mm-hmm. but to sort of expand it as well so that it was uh, more accessible. Yeah. yeah. So what are the core competencies? There are two things I would say that have lacked in setting up a psychoanalytic therapy. One is we often forget what what we're trying to do. (laughs) And so often people get lost Mm -hmm. into why am I doing this or why am I talking about this? And so therapeutic intent is uh, core competency one. You have to have a sense of what you're doing uh, fundamentally. If you know where you're headed, you then have lots of choices as to what what you use and what you do. But I also think that the idea uh, just of therapeutic intent leaves lots of room for the patient and the analyst to also determine, well, what are, what are we going for here? Um, and, and that can also serve as a um, plumb line for them in their, in their work, for reviewing their work, for reflecting upon their work, and all those kinds of things. And what you'll see in all of these competencies is actually more a way of being in relationship than applying some particular technique. The core category is actually love. So even this therapeutic intent, you can see, is relational in nature. You don't become creative or more thoughtful or more interpersonal unless there's a relationship that you're involved with to to achieve those. It's it's something that I feel like we all kind of know deep down is that the technique 
yes, the technique matters in that we have to be trained and have to be competent. Right. But you you have therapists of all stripes who are successful, and I and I have to think that it's about them mm-hmm. and the relationships they have with their patients. Right. The research does say that regardless of modality, it is the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the patient that creates change. What is that relationship then? It's not social. It's not coaching. Psychoanalysis is a particular kind of relationship. And I think there's three, three stages in here, three ideas of therapy. First is storytelling and confession, and that somebody is in trouble, they come to psychotherapy because they don't know who to talk to out there. They have stories in their lives that are private to themselves, they're not ready to share it in the world or whatever. And and to come in and have somebody who is, is confidential, who actually wants to hear your story, wants to listen to your story, allows you to confess your story, uh, suspends judgment around your story, and tries to explore your story with you. That is really healing, just that event alone. That's where psychotherapy is successful in all genres. But what generally happens is that there's a whole other thing that's going on at the same time. During that confession and during that storytelling, that story is already starting to get connected to me as as the listener. Transference, counter-transference, and before you know it, enactments and uh, conflicts and what have you of the past begin to happen here. That's where most therapies don't. And this is where these core competencies begin to address how we as psychoanalysts can deepen that part of transformation by starting to work with the past, linking the patterns that have been established over time letting ourselves be used as a particular subject in the, in, the, in the patient's life so that they can rework old patterns and old thinking. So it moves beyond the confession and the storytelling to actually re-entering into their relational intrapsychic world with another human being. The third part for me is I end up working with people for a long time and there comes a point where I don't, we're not doing analysis anymore. I'm always nervous about why are we still doing this together. What came to my mind the other day is witnessing. We all need witnesses in our lives. I know with one particular man who, who I'm thinking of about this, is he had no one in his life. Zero. Nada. And our work had been, has been very significant in, in helping him reestablish attachments and connections to a wife, to his children, to his family, things that were so broken and so unavailable to him. And by our work and working through the analytic process, he has deepened his own capacity for relatedness and has a much richer, deeper world. And so you took on a role in that relationship, that he was experiencing you as not someone new, but as those relationships, and it gave him like a laboratory or something, to work it out. Correct. And so our work, I think, is done, our analytic work. But he stays with me um, because he still wants someone to witness these changes in his life and to remember him in a way that nobody else can. 
And so I have not encouraged him to end. For one reason, given his history, his mother cut him off, basically. And so as long as he needs me as a witness in this third phase of a treatment, I'm fine with that. But it it helped clarify for me, because sometimes I go, how should I help this person terminate, is my question. And I have another patient who I've seen a long time. He comes in every session. He goes, I'm done here, don't you think? And I go, yeah. But he comes the next week as well. (laughs) Because... He's not quite ready to to let go of this witness either. So those are the three things that happen. And the reason I bring that up is I end up with a lot of people who've been in previous treatments. And the reason is because the therapy didn't go to phase two. They didn't go into the analysis. They stayed with the patient of storytelling and of confession and getting things out for the first time. And it was helpful to them. But they didn't get to work it out, basically, because the therapist wasn't open to being that analytic Um, self for the sake of the patient. I can't talk to Roy without rushing back to the early days of my clinical experience and the consultations he provided. One of my first patients was a man I call Chris. Chris was transgender. Although born into a female body, Chris felt dysphoric at an early age, and in his 30s he came out to his friends and began to transition. But Chris was caught between his evangelical parents and his background as a devout Christian and his gender identity. He knew that his church and his parents wouldn't approve of his transition, and yet every time he took a shot of testosterone, he started to feel more and more like himself. We struggled around this. I disclosed to him my own faith journey and my sense of disembodiment from a faith community. I told him about liberal theologians who wrote on the transgender nature of God, and I tried to convince him that he didn't need to have such rigid beliefs around God and morality. And Chris began to skip our sessions more and more. That work seems really raw to jump into that second phase. Very raw. And it's easy for us to not want to go there. Yep. And that that's my argument against our field, actually. It's interesting. I often would talk about beyond empathy or like empathy is not, not all that good <laughs> That because um, of the boober influence on me. It's about genuine encounter. <laughs> and I think most psychotherapy is set up with empathic ideas and being a kind listener not a real, I mean, and there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it doesn't, I believe, move towards an authentic encounter where there's a a deep mutual honesty between patient and therapist. You value authentic and genuine encounter. All I know is how deep honesty with, with my patient and I, how that shifts things so distinctly and how it helps them to live more authentically as well, yeah. When I mentioned my patient Chris to Roy and that he was skipping sessions, he told me, you have just become another parent for him. It was true. I was enacting the same dynamic that Chris experienced from his parents and his church, but from the other side. I had attempted to become his authority. And so I told Chris this. I said, Chris, I've been doing this wrong. I've been trying to convince you 
that you can have God and your masculinity at the same time. And that's not what you've been asking to hear from me. You're stuck between these two forces, and I think I need to acknowledge that I'm stuck too. Maybe we can be stuck together. It's not a willy-nilly kind of thing. When we decide to go to speak courageously, there is a, a deep responsibility upon us to speak responsibly. But when we decide to go into that, um, one of the concerns I've had is some, some of my students, I believe, have seen that as a free-for-all for just blurting out whatever comes to their mind. There, there can be a tendency to be blurters rather than workers. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea of, of being in this relationship and giving the, the truth at the moment that a person is experiencing, it has to always be released into the work. So, for example, whenever I offer something to a patient, I don't for a moment believe that it's the truth. I, I believe that it's an experience and that the patient and I now will work it. Um, but if I want to land something as though this is... I have the insight into your life, which is historical psychoanalysis, and then you'd work the resistance and all that. That's that's a big problem. You, you can't work this way if that's your view, that you've got the insight and the interpretation. But if you've got an interpretation, if you will, quote-unquote, to offer, the most important thing is what's the impact on the patient and how do you follow the patient and will you stay loyal to the work with the patient uh, and push through to the end on that. Yeah, and, and that sounds to me like the difference between subjectivity and intersubjectivity. The misconception about being genuine is that we both just need to be saying whatever our truth is, right. and there's no in-between. Right. But it seems like what is healing about therapy is when we figure shit out in the middle. Right. In the, in the in-between. Yeah. Yep. I'm not the authority. Um but I have an authority of my experience. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm, if the patient says, no, you're full of shit, um, I will go, okay, that might be true. Uh, let, but let's think about that. At the same time, I have to, you have to work with me to understand why this thought came here, why this thought is here. Right. Because there, there's something. And, and this happens almost every day. I mean, it happens every day. I was going to say every session with every person, but every, for sure where there is something that I'm offering and the patient's going, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorting out with them. I think out loud, like, well, I'm wondering then why this came to my mind. And, of course, then I have to be willing for them to say, well, why did it come to your mind? What's going on with you? And then I have to work with that. That's why it's so vulnerable, mm-hmm. uh, because I'm not, um, I'm not the truth holder. Yeah, and I guess, and I think maybe this goes back to the first point about intent is that so many of us get into this field to hide right and yeah uh to not have that stuff be accessible right to not have what's really happening in our mind accessible to our patients yeah can you imagine in any relationship when you are having an, a thought or an opinion and an experience say just with a, a very dear friend mm-hmm. and you're saying i'm not gonna let them in on that Think about the impact, long-term impact. Or the other problem that I have is uh, sometimes a, a therapist will say, well, they're not ready for it. And almost invariably, when we're saying the patient is not ready for it, we're not ready for it. 
holding back information, I think, is deadly to any relationship, frankly. And it seems like it, it seems like people. It seems cultural. It seems like oh, yeah. people are so. Uh, it's like there's an ambivalence. They're hungry for that, and at the same time, it's terrifying to them. And I think that's true about patients and therapists as well. Right. I, it's interesting. Well, the thing that I feel about therapy is it's countercultural. It's and it's counterintuitive because our intuitions say, "Don't say anything. This is going to be conflictual. It's too confusing. It's too this. So don't do that." But that's what psychotherapy is. It is the one place within our culture that says, Ugh, "We have to talk about these things." Whereas socially, there's a lot of things we don't say. Um, it would be because we just our culture doesn't allow it, mm-hmm. and and I'm fine with that because it there's lots of things that that I know socially that that or at, at work where there's tons of stuff that gets stirred, and I go, oh well. But if something is stirred in psychotherapy, we do have a responsibility, I believe, to speak to it. I had an example just yesterday with a patient who I find quite resistant, it seems. And I can't quite figure out how to get through that. And so sometimes I feel really resistant towards them, right? But I brought something up that they just were very mad at me about for saying. Um, And my response to that was, because I brought up the fact that there seems to be this uh, unrelenting uh, resentment towards a particular historical relationship. And that there seems to be an unwillingness almost to to see herself as a resentful person. That that's un, that's untenable to her. So she was very resentful towards me actually for bringing up that. But then what we did is we we worked. Well, what maybe that's not the word. Who cares about the word? But what is it that keeps her so hampered? from moving on and holding so much energy back to that relationship and trying to convince the world about that relationship and everybody else. And that even as she's moving ahead into more creative living, that that piece just holds her and captures and and can't move on kind of thing. I didn't have to hold to the word, but we had to hold to the experience and the idea. We wouldn't have got there if I wasn't willing to struggle with that word that had come to me Uh, didn't matter that that was the word, but I also wasn't going to let go that that word was trying to tell us something. In his new book, along with his friend Brad Strawn, Roy writes, The relational analyst holds to the notion that a patient needs to hear what is on the therapist's mind and how the therapist experiences them. Analysts take risk by stating what has come to their mind within the context of the therapeutic relationship. Risky though their speech may be, analysts offer their ideas from a non-authoritarian stance with tentativeness, curiosity, and humility. Words are offered to the patient with a spirit of inquiry, exploration, and negotiation. Analysts consider their thoughts and affects and attempt to metabolize before they speak and while they are speaking. They are also willing to make a mistake in speaking given their predisposition to follow the patient's response as the means for discovering understanding and meaning, rather than mere analytic interpretation. Interventions, thoughts, words come as conversations. My relationship with my patient Chris changed when I was able to acknowledge our enactment. From this point, the therapy was able to move forward in a new way, 
we began to explore what it was like to be two people who knew what stuckness felt like, and Chris began to feel more confident both in his maleness and his religious beliefs. Relational psychoanalysis was born out of a radical critique of the authoritarian stance, and that's what you hear me talking about, that I am not the authority, uh, but I want to be clear that I have an authority. Um, I have another example of a patient who I would always mess up on her statements. She also had been in three or four different relationships, and they always ended up with her having to be right. Hmm. And on this particular statement... She said she had paid this particular statement, and I said, I, I don't have any record of that. And she just really let into me, like, really angry at me, to the point where I thought, I just want to, I don't care. I don't, I don't care if I get paid for this. I don't, I don't want to experience this, this vitriol and this rage. And I had been wrong before, and so I just wanted to say, you're right. You probably did, and I made a mistake. Unfortunately, I had. I know that she didn't. <laughs> I, I like eighty-five percent proof. And I thought, okay, easy way out, or what do we do? What do I do? So, I was now involved in the enactment, right? Right. And I was now all of these other people who had been thrown under the bus if they had made one mistake against her and that sort of thing. So we stuck through it. I didn't leave her, and I was able to bring my experience of her and how the experience of the cruelty by which she was dealing with this, that sort of thing. I have reminded of another patient who, at the end of a session, said, I will not, I can't, I will not be here next session. He said, and I'm not paying for, you for that session either because I hate your cancellation policy, and walked out and slammed the door. Go, oh, shit. So comes back to the next session following that one, doesn't say anything. So I, about mid-session, I go, are we going to talk about what happened? He goes, oh, yeah. So I said, okay. So a few minutes later, he says, I think it's all crazy. And I, what you do and all that thing. And so I said, you know, I have to tell you what my experience was. It was so stark that um, how you ended and the timing of your ending and how you just walked out the door. And I said, I was left with this feeling it's, it's, it's either your way or the highway. Um, and that, I, that there was nothing, that there was nothing in our relationship that could uh, think about this. And he said, and he started to cry, and he said, that's my entire life. That's what I do to everybody. I, if I get frustrated or conflicted, I just say, screw it, and I walk out. And bringing him, your experience of him in that way is probably something that he hadn't right. experienced. He hadn't, nobody had given him that gift before. Correct. At least in a way that was saying, I'm still here, yeah. and I'm willing to work, about, work yeah. on this with you. Yeah. How do we think about it? Like, that's the big question. The big, that's a stance that I hold is, huh, uh-huh, wow. What do we do with this? What does this mean? How do we, how do we make sense of this? Mm-hmm. So one can't be speaking loudly and boldly if all, if all that sort of thing if one doesn't understand that the way I'm doing this is in a collaborative, a non-authoritarian way, trying to go, huh, I wonder what this is all about. And you know, you've heard, uh, of course, of my infamous patient who wanted to uh, kill herself if I didn't go to bed with her. Well, what lacked in that? With the can you tell the story though? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of her. Um, so, <clears throat> this was patient three of my entire life. Had been sexually abused for probably 10 years of her life 
by her father. Her mother married five times during this woman's first 18 years uh, to two different men. So she would div divorce the father, married another man, divorced him, remarried the patient's father, and then I can't remember how the sequence went after that. This woman was abused with him to the age of 18, which ended in a menage trois with his girlfriend and his daughter and himself. Very successful woman, beautiful woman, uh, had married, had two children, married a man who was very, uh, also had, was having his own affairs, left her at one time with a note on the mirror. Very smart, very funny, very witty. Was pretty incredible mother who even when uh, in two of her hospitalizations, she could reconstitute enough to go out and throw a birthday party for her child and then decompensate and come back to the hospital. Her whole language was sexualized. And that's one of the things I'd want to say, is our patients have a language that, come, that comes from their, their experience in life. It's a language we have to learn and become a part of. And so if someone has had a very erotic past, they're going to have a mind around eroticism, that sort of thing. It was inevitable that um, we would end up in a kind of a sexualized, eroticized encounter. Uh, she fell in love with me, I guess. That part is true, and I would say I also fell in love with her. I say that quite easily in the sense that this patient holds a very special place in my life and th that I, I love this woman. Sure. I love her in, in that sort of sexualized way. As the therapy grew white hot, and I got more scared because she would talk, constantly talk about wanting to go to bed with me and all those kinds of things. One day she said, if you don't go to bed with me, I'm going to kill myself. And that, of course, was very terrifying. So this patient came in one day and she says, I swear to God you're asexual. And I, I looked at her and I said, you know what, that's true. In this room with you, in this moment, I am, because your threat to kill yourself if I don't go to bed with you actually terrifies me. And everything settled down. And we were able to then to start to try and make meaning of that and why I had to be that kind of object for her. And if, in fact, I could become a, a love object rather than an erotic, eroticized object. I had the fortune of meeting with that woman 20 years later, and she said, it must have been so hard for you because I wanted you so badly. And I said, and yet you really didn't want me in that way. She got really quiet. She says, you know, that's true. And I'm glad you didn't take me in that way. I think the two things that are most profound about that to me, one, the awareness of your relational context, mm. uh, why you're feeling that way and where it comes from and, and all those things, and the willingness to, to go there. Yeah. Um, that it seems like without one or the other, that could have been disastrous. Mm -hmm. Well, and it was disastrous because I wasn't willing to go there. And right. when I was willing to go there is when it shifted. And I have to say... That is why I practice the way that that woman was pivotal to my career. What so often happens um, is that we blame the patient 
that they're really sick or they're very borderline or that this or whatever. Our task as mental health professionals is that's what that's what we're in it the business for. This is who comes our way. Mm-hmm. And so if we can't do it, that's fine. We can try and transfer and and move them on and that sort of thing. But to say that the patient's the problem isn't the truth. If I can't work with someone, if I have so much countertransference noise going on that I can't work with my patient, that's really not the patient's problem. It's something I have to work on. Yes, that patient said, Roy, you can do this, but you got it. you're going to have to show up. You're going to have to not hide behind the deal. That also has given me permission to say to a patient, huh, that is so fascinating that that's your fantasy or your question or whatever. I have to think about how much I want to say about it. When I was a student of Roy's, he was losing his mother. I reminded him of this and that I was there during that time. He told me that his mother died very courageously. She made her choice for no more interventions. She was very coherent and talked to him as she died. And she died with no regrets. He told me that she was a woman who loved through whatever. In Roy's book, Daniel Shaw contributes the chapter on love. Roy says that in the qualitative study that formed the foundation of the book, he could not escape an overwhelming concept that kept pushing to be named. He was reluctant to name it because it was too human and he was afraid it would sound soft for research. But it refused to not be recognized. Roy says that what lies at the heart of a psychoanalytic treatment is love. It comes up in three ways for him. First, interviewees stated it directly by saying, I love my patients. Secondly, he found himself loving his interviewees as he was caught up in how they expressed themselves with so much joy, care, and compassion for their patients. He found himself touched by the intimacy that was involved in their work as they risked themselves emotionally and intellectually, wholeheartedly engaging in the analytic process. And thirdly, love came to be defined by the very kind of relationship the analyst provides. As Freud once said, psychoanalysis is in essence a cure through love. Where does that come from for you? You have so you do have a unique ability to be willing to go there with responsibility. It seems like that patient was extremely formative and tra- transformational for you. Mm-hmm. Were you pulled in that direction before her, before she ever existed in your world? Hmm. That's a great question I haven't really thought about, but two things immediately came to my mind. One is, I grew up in a, uh, a very fortunate, the, I would say, the community and the home I grew up in, but it was Scandinavian, and um, we held our cards tightly. Hmm. But somehow or another, this little boy landed on the scene and goes, why can't we talk? <laughs> you know? But we couldn't. And so... I played the, the same cultural rule, and I'm still very much influenced by that. Actually, my uncle lost his wife at age, they were both 32, and about six years later, I was helping him out on his farm. And we're sitting there, and he turns to me, and he goes, today is the day that uh, six years ago that Janet died. Mm-hmm. And I, everything inside of me fell apart, but my response was, oh, really? And how do you feel about that? <laughs> how old were you? Probably 16 or 17. <laughs> and he and I have been close the rest of our lives. Because um, you were willing to go there. Exactly. The bells going off at that moment was nobody had really talked with him or about it in the family since she died six years earlier. And, 
And that something dawned on me like, oh, how terrible that is, how unfortunate. Although we tend to be people who are conflict avoidant, uh, which is a very interesting thing. Therapists, psychoanalysis is based on the conflict model, but we are conflict. Most of us are conflict avoidant. Right. Uh, when I did the, I do a test now in class. Ninety percent of the students in the class are conflict avoidant. Mm. This is why it's such a training uh, thing. What I'm talking about in relational psychoanalysis, it's a major shift from culture, as we talked about. It's counterintuitive. That's not how we work every day. We're having to work countercultural to how we communicate in relationship. If we're all conflict avoidant, how are we going to work in a model that is conflict specific, that it's to be expected and it's to ha- having to be worked through? Right. For example, I had a, I have a patient of mine who, man, I ha- was bringing this stuff and I had all the beautiful patterns and links and, tra- and, and transferences and I had this most beautiful interpretation. Just, I could hardly wait to say it. I was going to impress the socks off of him. But I thought to myself, you better stop. You're too proud of yourself right now. You're really too eager hmm. to want to bring this. So just sit back. And sure enough, he brought it much more beautifully than I could have done. Uh, and so whenever we're too eager to speak or too haughty or so certain about ourselves, we better pause and go, what's behind my wish to speak? Who is this for? Who is this for? It's a very important part of, of discipline spontaneity. The last and core category is that of love. Um, uh, so much to say about it. But it's a it, bad word for some people. In it our is field. a bad word. It was interesting with my, uh, I had research assistants that helped me uh, code this data. And they were really uh, taken by the fact that this was a very loving act, this kind of relational stuff. And if you think of the core competencies I've just given you, if those become your way of doing therapy, good God, that's love. To listen to somebody and to allow yourself to be used by somebody. Some, some of what I uh, said here about that is it came to me because I was very touched by the intimacy by which the uh, interviewees uh, talked about their patients. Some of them also talked directly about that they love their patients, and I, I totally would be one of those. I think thirdly, how it ended up as a core category It is a relationship that requires such honesty and risk-taking, a deep immersion into the affective lives of the other, a devotion to scrutinize non-defensively one's own self in an attempt to understand, feel, and grasp the internal and interpersonal world of the other. The analyst is willing to resist the urge for self-protection, surrender certainty, and engage in the inevitable conflicts, misrecognitions, and ruptures, and to stay in the conflict until it is worked through. The analyst's relentless ethic of honesty, a Freudian technique Freud believed an essential requirement for the patient, is now valued by a relational analyst as a requirement also of themselves. And it is this honesty that births an unusual authenticity rarely found, I believe, in human relations, and is the primary factor that engenders change and transformation in our patient's life. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for sitting down with me. Yeah. This has been Between Us. Our thanks to Roy Barsness. Between Us Season 2 is sponsored by Medify. Go and find the app in the App Store and start expanding your awareness of your own emotional experience now. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. Make sure to find us on social media and subscribe to us on iTunes. And until next time, take care.